0: it's supporting care is taking pride in the work that you do care is your grandkids cheering you on care is kissing your love for the first time and saying goodbye for the last Care is supporting those who are struggling. Giving a helping hand. Care is accessibility. Care is respect for independence. Care is for life. Care is for life. James 1.27 will tell us that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Isaiah 1.7 tells us to bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. Psalm 68.5 shows us that we worship a God who is the father of the fatherless and the protector of widows. We worship a God who has a deep heart for the oppressed for the marginalized, for the vulnerable, and for those who are left without many options. Well, my name is Phil, and I serve as one of the pastors here at Mosaic, and today we're going to be looking at the biblical teaching of caring for widows. You know, when we look at the verses like I've just read, uh, you can read these and pretty quickly, easily in fact, say that we here at Mosaic are doing an incredible job uh, caring for the fatherless, for the orphan. For the vulnerable child. We are a church that has collectively adopted nearly a hundred children over the last several years. These are kids that, that had no home and now they have a home with families here at Mosaic. We are deeply involved in the uh, Safe Families program where people are taking in kids for short periods of time when they need it most. Our wraparound care program is taking off beautifully where we're wrapping care around adoptive families, especially in those early years when they're trying to figure it all out. If we expand the teaching on orphans to include vulnerable children in general, we can point to the ways in which we're serving the poor, where we're serving uh, the homeless, we can point to our support of Agape International Missions and Love 146 as they seek to rescue and restore Kids that are caught up in human trafficking and exploitation. We can point to the more recent efforts here at Mosaic where in our kids ministry we've stepped into uh, the special needs arena and now we're taking care of 50 kids with special needs on a weekly basis in our children's ministry through uh, what we call the Sidekick Program. We are a church that cares deeply about vulnerable children. And I I love that about us. Uh, It makes me proud to be to be a part of this church, to call this my home. <laughs> Amen. That's great. That's what about the other half of the verse? What about the widows? James said, religion that is pure and undefiled is this. Care for the widows and the orphans. Care for the orphans and the widows. See, now orphans sometimes, not always, are young and, and, and cute not always, right? Um, Widows, on the other hand, may be older. They may show the the effects of years of of building a lifetime of wisdom. Uh, It may not be as pretty, right? Orphans, you know, there's this life full of promise. There's this sense when you step into the life of an orphan that you are literally altering the course of this kid's life for the next 50, 60, 70, 80 years. That's a beautiful thing. Whereas when you step into the life of a widow, you may be caring for that person really just through their final years. That's a different process. So what do we do with widows? What does the Bible say about widows? Does that widow category even matter today in America? Is that concept obsolete due to government programs and and opportunities for women that, that didn't exist at the time when the Bible was written? Are there other groups of people today that we ought to look at and say, you need to be cared for like you are a widow? That's what we'll be talking about today. We're looking at the other half of the verse. And and I'll just tell you up front here, we're going to be in a lot of Bible passages, so rather than have you go to one and say we're going to be in there for the whole time, I'll just say, look, just do your best to keep up. I'll try to make it clear as we go through. And you know, we see this time today as the beginning of a conversation, the start of a new initiative at Mosaic, so that five years from now, we'll be able to look around at the life of Mosaic, just the reality of Mosaic, and say, wow, um, now we're, we're not only a church that is known for taking incredible care of orphans, but we're also a church that is known for taking incredible care of widows. We put a great deal of time into planning the teaching time here at Mosaic, and our lead pastor, Renault, um, sensing that it was time to address the other half of James 1, uh, specifically asked me to preach on this topic because of the journey that God has had, had me on, has my, has my family on. So I want to start with just a little bit of my story. Uh, my family and I are relative newcomers here uh, in, in Mosaic and in Florida in general. Uh, this coming uh, July will mark two years of uh, time here at Mosaic and in Florida. And when, when you go on staff at a church that talks about adoption as much as we do, right, and you have a boss that adopted four kids from Africa— right? You you can't help but begin to give adoption some serious thought. And that's not something that was necessarily on on my wife and I's minds before arriving here, but we've certainly made ourselves very open to that since arriving here. And yet, each time that we've prayed about it, each time that that a sermon has been preached about adoption, each time that we've celebrated Orphan Sunday here at Mosaic, there's been this, this little voice inside of me that said, that's not what I have for you. Now, I don't want to assume that this was the the spirit of God speaking to me, but my wife and I independently kind of sensed the same thing. That's not what I have for you. And when you hear a phrase like that, it begs the question, right? Well, God, what is it that you do have for us? What is it that you are calling me into? What is it that you're calling our families into? And for me, each time that I've heard a sermon about orphans or an illustration about adoption or a video about adoption, what seems to happen for me is that that, that word orphan, as it, as it enters into my brain, it just sort of translates, and it becomes the word widow. It just sort of switches as it enters my brain, and I begin to apply everything I'm hearing to the context of caring for widows. And it's funny because really all the teaching, all the, all the compassion and the love that we express for the fatherless, for the vulnerable child, it all translates so well to the widow. It translates perfectly to caring for widows. So, You know, I grew up in a house where taking care of one's parents was taken very seriously. When I was a a child, just 12 years old, uh, my parents purchased a home with my my grandparents in mind. They they came and moved in with us, and I I loved it. I loved going downstairs and sitting with my grandfather and um, watching baseball or the news or whatever. And I'd go for drives with him in his station wagon. And I, I loved intergenerational living. We celebrated my grandparents' 50th anniversary shortly after they moved in with us. And just just really just a few weeks after that, we found out that my grandfather had cancer. And he died about a year after he moved in with us. And I, I loved the time that I got with him. I loved that I got to spend time with him, hanging out with him almost every day. And he was sharp right up until the last days. His mind was sharp right up until the last days. And then... He passed away, and his wife, like most wives, outlived him. My grandmother became a widow, and she lived for several more years, and then she passed as well. They were both in their 80s when they died. They lived full and good lives, and they spent their last years in the care of their family. So this was the example that I was given as a child, and I knew, even as a kid, that I wanted to follow that same example that was given to me that someday when the time was right, we would do the same. And then after moving to Florida, I began to sense that it wasn't just our parents that we were called to care for. We believed that God might be calling us specifically into caring for another widow as well. And so we actually involved uh, that plan as we began to look for a home. We included that, that calling in our plans to buy a home. So our instructions to our realtor were simple. We said, look, uh, we need the house to be primarily on one floor, if there are bedrooms or rooms upstairs, there has to be at least one bedroom downstairs. Again, I'm thinking this through with a person in mind who might have mobility issues. Somebody who's in a wheelchair. Maybe they've got a walker. Maybe there's equipment that needs to be figured in. And So I'm, I'm thinking this through. I'm saying, all right, God, if you're calling us into this, then, then we need a house that's going to work for this. And so uh, we did that, we, we, we prayed, we, we looked at a lot of different houses, we prayed for a house with four bedrooms, God gave us one with five bedrooms, and we sensed that perhaps he was upping the game a little bit for us even more, right? Well, we've been in that house for a little more than six months, and those rooms, they sit empty, and I'll be honest with you, that bugs me. It bugs me because I've, I've taken this step and, and I, want, I want God to do what we think he's calling us to do, and yet... His timing and my timing clearly aren't working out quite right, and so I'm just trying to be patient and wait on that. Uh, I've done what I can do, I've done what I can do, and now all I can do is wait, right? But I walk into those rooms and I pray. I pray for the individuals who might one day live in those rooms, whether that's my parents or whether that's some widow that I don't know who she even is right now, but I pray for them, and I pray that God would uh, just free us up to do that well. So, when Renault came to me and said, you know, I think you should be the one to preach on taking care of widows, my first response was, but I'm not doing it yet, right? Like, this is aspirational for me. I'm not actually doing it yet. And he said, no, no, listen, you bought a house, the single largest investment a person makes, and you did it with widows in mind. I think you're probably um, more qualified to talk on this than I am right now. And so here I am, and that's our story, and God's still writing it in our lives. Um, We don't know what the future holds uh, we know that we need to be ready when God speaks and uh, we're ready for it. And that brings us to this biblical topic of caring for widows. It's amazing, actually, the sheer volume of writing on scripture, uh, in Scripture on widows. The issue of, of justice for widows runs all through the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it's hard to find a demographic of people that receive more attention from Jesus than widows. Jesus weaves them into all sorts of stories, Widows are literally all over the pages of Scripture. And so I want to take you to just a few of the key passages here today. Certainly the most well-known passage that I feel like summarizes everything in a way is this James 1.27 passage that's up on the screen. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. It's the idea that if you you boil it all down, this Christian faith of ours at its base is a faith that is full of, Of compassion for people that are vulnerable. Certainly, if you look at the first century when the New Testament was written, orphans and widows would have been some of the most vulnerable people around. It's obvious to see how a child without parents is going to be vulnerable. But what about widows during the times when our scriptures were written? Well, a widow, a woman in the Hebrew and Greek culture of the Old and New Testaments, would have been under her. Uh, her father's headship and protection and provision until she got married. That's uh, just all women. That's just way, the way it's going to be in the early uh, church. And that was really her only option. It's not like she had an option to say, well, you know, I, I think I'm going to um, you know, get my own place and, and get a job and, and kind of do my own thing. That was not an option in the first century, right? So when you got married then, that headship and protection and provision is passed over then to the husband. Again, that's her only option. The family inheritance, any property owned, cattle, whatever you've got, it's going to be passed on to not the wife if her husband dies, but to the oldest male child. And then if she doesn't have any male children, then uh, all that property is going to then revert back to her her husband's family. And what she's going to be left with is just the dowry that she came into the marriage with. That's all she's going to have. And so as a result. God throughout Scripture is seen coming to the defense of widows. Psalm 68 says that God is a defender of widows. Psalm 146 will say that God sustains the fatherless and the widow. Some of the ways that God has come to the aid of widows in Scripture has been to instill rules for caring for them. So there's lots of different rules in place. Everything from uh, looking at a, a, a widow who has nothing but the coat on her back And how you interact with that person. And then the widows who might have more, more property. You look at the story of Ruth and Naomi. And this is a story of widows, right? Boaz becomes what is called the kinsman redeemer. He's a family member and he redeems these these family members. Um, Naomi and Ruth have a piece of land that uh, because there is no male child to inherit the land. And no immediate brothers to take it on. It sort of ends up in this odd in-between space. Legally, Naomi and Ruth cannot own it. And yet their fates are tied to whoever takes it on. They're they're inexplicably tied to that. And so the reality is that the land comes with baggage. The baggage is Naomi and Ruth. Think of it like inheriting a piece of property. And then you, you get into it and you find out there's all these back taxes and there's all these fees. And you're like, man... If I had known this property had all this baggage, I might not have taken it on. Um, That's kind of what is going on with this piece of property that Naomi and Ruth's family have. However, Boaz is willing to take on the responsibility of not only caring for that land, but also caring for the widows that are associated with the land. And he then, uh, even though he might lose out, even though it might go very badly for him, he's willing to do it. And it's a beautiful picture of a family caring for a widow. Well, what if you had no options like this? What if you as a widow had no kinsman redeemer to step in? Well, Deuteronomy, talks, uh, Deuteronomy 14 talks about food banks that were set up for those who needed food. And, and then later on in, in Deuteronomy, we learn about gleaning laws. Um, and that's a really interesting way that, that widows were taken care of, where you have uh, farmers are, are told, listen, um, don't, uh, don't be super efficient in the way that you farm. Uh, leave some stuff behind. And then when you're finished, um, the widows could go out into the fields and they could um, harvest whatever was left over. If it was grapes or, or, or wheat or olives, whatever it might be, they were allowed to go in and, and take what was left over so that they could then feed themselves and, and, and perhaps their families as well. And the interesting thing about this is that it leaves the dignity of the widow intact. It wasn't um, uh, a plain handout. Uh, they got to work for their food. And, and there was dignity involved in that. But of course, um, many widows um, would have instead said, look, I, I, I want to remarry. And the Bible has rules on that. So a widow's brother-in-law was the first one to be called upon if a woman's husband dies and she has no male heir. So she goes to the brother, and the brother-in-law would be called upon to marry her. This was called a, a leverite, marriage. And we read about that in Deuteronomy 25. If the woman then had um, uh, a male heir come through that brother, then the male heir uh, actually takes on the inheritance of her late husband. The, the child is seen as not the child of, of this new husband, but rather the child of the first husband, treated in that same way, and that child takes on the inheritance of, of this late husband. And so that was a beautiful way of, again, taking care of uh, these widows, and here's the crazy thing: it was taken very seriously. If the brother refused to take on this family requirement, the widow could actually take him to court, right, and and sue him for it. And and if he still refuses, then he is taken into the public square, and the court officiates this public humiliation ceremony, like he is publicly humiliated for not doing uh, the requirements on him as the brother. This is how serious it was taken. And so what about when we get to the New Testament? What teaching do we see there on widows? Well, you know, Jesus' Jesus's own mother was a widow. And, uh, and in that, we get a picture of Jesus making sure that his mother would be taken care of when he was gone. He asks John to take care of her. In fact, some of the last words that Jesus speaks on this planet are about caring for his mother widows seemed to find themselves into all sorts of stories, illustrations that Jesus would share in the New Testament. This was clearly one of the things that concerned him most. Well, the New Testament's going to go on with some very specific teaching on widows, and it sort of breaks into two categories. There's this general teaching on caring for all widows, and then there's specific teaching on caring for the most needy of all the widows that were a part of the church. And what we find uh, very early on is that there was an official list of the widows who needed uh, extra care, very needy widows. And we learned this in Acts chapter 6 because the list wasn't being managed very well. And so you had these people who were feeling like they were left out. Um, uh, these widows are coming to the leaders of the church and they're saying, hey, it seems like, it seems like if you are a Greek speaking widow, um, things are really tight um, and we can't get any food that we need. But if you are uh, if you are a Hebrew-speaking widow, well then, everything opens up. And so there was this, um, whether it was racism or favoritism, uh, it wasn't good. And so the leader stepped in and said, we've got to manage this better. And they, they appoint people to run that widow's ministry. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 5, we get a very in-depth teaching on how the early church was instructed to care for widows. And if you want, you can go there because we'll be here for a little bit. This is the key passage to study, really, um, on widows. And so I want to take some time to look at this with a little bit closer detail. So again, we're in 1 Timothy 5. We're going to start in verse 3. Paul starts this way. He says, honor widows who are truly widows. Now that's an odd way to start, I think. Uh, Honor widows who are truly widows. You would think that you're either a widow or you're not. Um, But here is really the first indication that we get that not all widows are to be given the exact same kind of help from the church. There were widows, and then there were widows, right? So, let's go on. Um, We're going to learn more about what this means as we go through this passage. Verse 4, we're going to get some teaching on how a widow's family fits into the equation. It says, But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household, And to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. And so, a widow with adult children first turns to her adult children for help, not to the church. Now, Paul's not saying the church isn't going to step in and help her in any way. He's just saying let's let's make sure we use our resources wisely. And in the case of uh, a widow with adult children, some of the best ways that the church can come alongside of that widow is to say. Let's work with your adult kids and help them to understand what kind of care you're going to need. Help them to understand what kind of needs are going to need to be met. Because they may not even get it. And so that's some of the best ways that the church can serve for a person with adult children. Later in this passage, we're going to read this. Uh, In verse 8, Paul will say, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Uh, That's That's very strong words. Refusing to care for the widows in your family is like denying your faith. Now when you read a a phrase like that, you realize that maybe maybe when James says uh, that faith without works is dead, starts to make a lot of sense. But what if a widow had no family? Let's jump back to uh, 1 Timothy 5 uh, in verse 5. She who is truly a widow left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. So in this first century era, if you were a widow who was left truly alone, no family at all, your options were really very minimal. And to be honest, your options were not always pretty. It was not, it was not going to go well for you. And so if you were a Christ-following widow who was left truly alone, you had a choice to make. Were you going to trust in God? Were you going to, in the words of 1 Timothy, set your hope on God? Or were you going to try to figure it out on your own through what Paul calls self-indulgence? And by the way, the the connotation there involves sexual self-indulgence. You can understand why in a culture where men were absolutely needed to provide security and safety for a woman, that a woman who was having a hard time finding one man to truly care for her might instead turn to many men to care for her just one night at a time. But setting your hope on God, continuing in prayer night and day, as the passage reads, well, that's a huge risk. It was a step of faith. And so the widow who is truly a widow is encouraged to set her hope on God. And so then we see the church's heart to care for the widows that are in need, those who are truly widows. The first goal is always to see if there are family members that can really step in and help. And if there are no family members, they would look a little deeper at each particular situation to see what what are the needs here. So 1 Timothy 5, verse 9, Paul says, let a widow be enrolled. That's that, that official list I was talking about. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age. So, In other words, if you're under 60, the church is going to help you help yourself in some ways. It's not that the younger widow isn't going to receive any sort of care uh, from the church. Again, there's going to be all sorts of ways the church is going to want to step in and come alongside of her, whether it's help with her kids, whether it's help with whatever. But in terms of placing her in this special um, extreme care, she's, she's not going to end up on that list. Because there are, there are options for her if she's younger. We're going to come back to that later on. Paul, Paul then goes on and he gives us some character qualifications for the widows to receive the special care. Not the, not the general care, the special care. He says, um, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. For example, if she's brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. Now, this might sound like kind of a tall order, right? It's almost like, hey, if you've lived a perfect life, I mean, if you've just, you know, everything's been great for you. You've never done anything wrong. We got you. We're taking care of you. But otherwise, you're kind of on your own. Uh, I I don't think that's what that means at all. Um, What we have to do is we have to recognize that this, this list of character qualifications is just that. It's not, it's not a measure of perfection, but rather a measure of character. And so if the church is a family, and one of your true family members needs care, you want to take care of that woman in a, in a very clear way. But in a culture of extreme poverty, you want to take care of, of the needs that are in your church, but you may not be able to take care of every need that exists in every corner of your city. And so Paul Gives us some character qualifications. Has she, uh, does she have a reputation for good works? Is, uh, has she raised up children? And again, we would assume here that those children in some sense can't take care of her for some reason. Maybe they're too young. Uh, maybe something happened to them. Is she someone who is known as being um, hospitable when her husband was alive? Paul talks about the, the washing of feet um, of the saints, uh, the believers. Meaning, did she have a, a servant's attitude? It's difficult to have a reputation as a servant in the church if, um, if you might have only showed up um, when your husband died. Again, the church may still help her. They may still step in and help in a, in a big way, but it may not be that specific help that Paul is talking about here. You know, I have, I have fond memories of my dad as a pastor visiting older ladies in the nursing homes. Sometimes I would go with him when he would do this. And I remember one day I said to him when we were visiting this particular widow, I said, Dad, what? why do you visit this woman in the nursing home? She doesn't, she doesn't go to our church. Because there were others who, who made it out of the nursing home and, and, and came to church. And she's, he said to me, well, you know, she doesn't go anymore because she's basically bedridden. She can't really get out anymore. But, but when she was a little bit younger, when she was a little bit more mobile, she was deeply involved in the church. She was a pillar in the church. We, we can't forget her just because we no longer see her. She had a reputation for good works. So Paul tells us that when it comes to the widows who are truly widows, look for the ones with strong character and make sure they are cared for very well. And it's, it's really interesting to me that Paul gives us these character qualifications for widows um, when you don't see that for orphans, you don't see that for the poor in general, but for the widows who receive this extra care organized by the church we get character qualifications. Why is that? I mean, just like elders, pastors, deacons, they have character qualifications. We're given character qualifications for widows. And it's because when they landed on this official list, uh, they became an integral part of the life and the functioning of the church. They almost became like, like staff members in a way. And because of that, they had to be held to a higher standard. They had to be held to a, a, a different standard. What about the younger widows, though? Remember earlier, Paul says not to give that that kind of special care to the widow who is under the age of 60. And then in verse 11, he says, uh, he goes on and talks more about this. He says, refuse to enroll the younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. Now, this is obviously written in a different culture when women faced a different reality in that day. But the basic point that we pull from this, uh, that follows on this, is that when we read this passage, we are reading about those who are truly widows. And because the needs are so great, a widow should exhaust other opportunities of the church, uh, of outside of the church, her, with her family, with potentially remarriage, uh, before saying, "I need the church to take care of all of my needs." Again, it's not that the church isn't going to step in; it's that if there are options, Paul's saying, "Let's look at these other options before we put this person on the list." Because if a widow ended up on this specific list, basically they were saying. I'm not going to get remarried. That, that option is done for me. I need care from the church. I'm not, I'm never going to get remarried. She was essentially making a, whatever lifetime she had, she was making a lifetime commitment then to the church. And so then Paul says, if, if she then comes back later on and says, you know what, I've actually decided that I want to get married. He's saying that it's, it's like she's sort of denying uh, her former faith and she's backing out on that commitment that she made. And that's why Paul says uh, that she abandoned her former faith. And so if a young widow came to the church for help and said, what am I going to do? My husband's gone. The answer would have been, look, we're absolutely going to help you figure this out. But um, let's, let's figure out if remarriage is possible. I know that's going to be hard to love another, but let's figure out if that's possible. And that wasn't a, a callous decision. Uh, that wasn't um, mean-spirited that was just an economic reality of a culture that had extreme poverty and a lot of widows. See, today we have lots of men and women who do not get married, who go through long portions of their life unmarried. That simply wasn't the case in the first century era. And so the idea that a young widow would not remarry would seem strange in the culture of the New Testament. While Paul will say elsewhere that it's, it's better if you remain unmarried, he also knows that biology And chemistry are powerful forces, especially when you are younger. And you better make sure that you are truly called to singleness before you make a lifelong commitment as a widow to the church. Paul finishes the passage in a really simple way. He says, if any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Bottom line. The church is absolutely called to care for widows, to care for vulnerable women, but the church can only give that really special care to those who are truly widows, who have no other options to step into their lives in a major way. Again, using Paul's words, honor the widows who are truly widows. Now, when we study uh, these passages on widows, lots of questions are going to come up. Uh, Who is the modern day widow? That's a good question to ask because the scriptures are written in one cultural context and we're lifting them out and we're saying, how do we apply them to this other cultural context that we live in? When we look at the the biblical cultural context uh, on widows, it's right to then look around at our context today and say, are there other groups of people that should be considered like widows today? And I think there are. A single mom may require the same kind of help and care that a widow needs. Again, you bring the scriptures to bear on her situation before going in uh, with particular types of support. Does she have other options? Is there child support from a former husband? Does she have a job that pays well? How old is she? What is her connection to the church? Just like in 1 Timothy 5, you're asking character questions, not to be mean or judgmental or callous or insensitive to what is probably a horrible situation. But because the church and its people need to be careful, Paul gives us character qualifications. So single moms are absolutely at times going to be treated like a widow. And there's all sorts of other ways that we step in. It's not just financial, right? There's all sorts of other ways that we step into a person's life. So single moms. How about single women? A single woman who has never married may live a fairly independent life, but but may still desire and, and want help with other things that she just doesn't feel equipped for. It's not necessarily a male or female thing. It's just the fact that we're not all gifted in the same ways, right? And so I'll give you an example here at Mosaic that I've seen several times. Um, there's, a, there's a guy at Mosaic that has helped uh, several single women negotiate a good price on a new car. Very practical, right? Now, I'm not saying that women are incapable of buying a car. Please don't send me those emails. I don't need that. Um I'm just saying that that many of the women that I know have said they hate the process, whereas guys seem to really enjoy the process. It's like a hunt, right? You're you're going in, you're negotiating, it's fun. Um, uh, So there's a guy in our church that has done that for several women, uh, helped them to not feel like they're being ripped off. Um, That's just a a really simple way that that a person might need service. Um, So someone might point to these single moms and single women and just say, well, look, I mean, why, why can't they just get married or remarried? Well, that, that may be their deepest desire, but some of them won't be able to. Do you know there are more women uh, in America than men? I'm um, Just statistically, there are more women than men. So it's not going to work out for everybody. Florida, um, 95.6 men for every 100 women. That's Florida, okay? Um, by the way, I think it's Wyoming has, like, the other side, so that's a good option for you. Um, So 95.6 men for every 100 women. 85 of those men are still playing video games at their mom's basement, so it's like the prospects are not great, you know? So you see, it's not okay to just say, go get married. The reality is there will be good, godly, Christ-honoring women who desire to get married, but may never get married. They may live successful, independent lives, and yet these women may find themselves nearing the end of their days without a husband. And we may need to come alongside of them and say, we're going to treat you in some ways like a widow and step into your life with certain types of care as you need it. Another question that might come up is why are we only talking about women? Why doesn't the Bible talk about Husbands who lose their wives. This is an interesting thing, right? That we see see all this talk about widows, but we don't see really anything in the Bible talking about what do you do with the widowers. Well, the simple fact is that in Bible times, if you uh, were a man and your wife died, you had options, lots of options. And so the Bible doesn't go there because it doesn't matter in that period of time. What about today? Certainly, this is different today, right? Does does any of this even matter today? I mean, women have far more opportunities today than they did years ago. From the corporate world to political office and a thousand jobs in between, women have options today like they've never had before. And yet, even today, the percentage of married moms who choose to stay at home and raise their kids is actually on the rise. It's now right about 30% of all married moms choose to stay at home and raise their kids. And it's not because they have no other options. My wife is a great example of this. Um, She has a a bachelor's degree and a master's degree. And yet uh, her preference most days um, is to be home with the kids, right? Um, We homeschool the kids and uh, she homeschools the kids. I shouldn't take any credit for that whatsoever. Um, But see that This is just a simple reality, right? 30% of moms are choosing to stay home. That's not a statement on what is right or wrong. It's just a a statement of fact. So uh, some of them will go back to work when the kids get older, some will not. Those that do are entering into the workforce in their 40s or 50s and will probably not catch up in their careers or from a pay standpoint. And so then as a result, the stats are gonna tell us that when a woman's husband dies, the household income is gonna go down by an average of forty percent, an average of forty percent. That's not nineteen fifty; that's today. And you know, I don't think it's any great secret that men generally live less; they live shorter lives than their female counterparts, right? So today, in the U.S., um, uh, men are going to live an average age of seventy-six, and women are going to live to the average age of eighty-one. So, eighty-five percent of all married women will at some point become a widow. 85% of married women will outlive their husbands by at least five years. So we are far more likely to have a whole lot of widows than we are to have a whole lot of widowers. Now, if you watch movies, you would think it's the opposite, right? Hollywood seems to love the story of the widower. Um, And and it's funny because he typically is a very successful, good-looking guy, guy. preferably with a British accent, um, with a couple of beautiful children, and he's just trying to hold it all together. Hollywood loves this story. Try to find movies that tell the story of the woman whose husband passed away. Much shorter list, and yet in reality far more common. So let's talk to the married men for just a minute here. Guys, I want you to listen up. Think about your wife. Now think about the fact that more than likely, more than likely, She will outlive you. More than likely, her income will be far less when you are gone. Do you have a plan for that reality? Do you have a life insurance policy? Does your wife know where it is? Do you have a will? Is it up to date? Look, I'm not trying to be depressing here. I'm just saying, like, this is part of what it means to care for your spouse. Now, I'm pretty healthy, but, you know, accidents happen, and I want my wife and kids to be cared for if I'm gone. And so I have a, a term life insurance policy, and it's a big one. I mean, I'm worth way more dead than I am alive. <laughs> term life insurance policies are cheap, especially if you get, one, get them when, when you're young and healthy. I got mine at 28. It was cheap. And that's a part of caring for our, our spouses. You know, many elderly men will also need help especially today when people are living longer. And so uh, some of what we talk about when it comes to widows will apply to some elderly men. In fact, the average life expectancy, as it goes up and up, I think we're going to see an age when it's not just widows who need care, but it's also going to be many widowers, as well as older married couples who are having mobility issues and uh, mental clarity issues, and they're going to need a special kind of care. Let me just switch gears here for a bit and bring you into a very real situation today that we are facing uh, as a country. So we're about to step into an unprecedented time in American history as it pertains to the elderly. Uh, You've heard of the baby boomers, right? You know the baby boomers? Um, Lots of you are in that, that generation. It's the people who were born from 1946 to 1964. Lots of you are in that category. Largest generation of Americans born in U.S. history. When the boom hit its high in 1957, there were over eight babies being born every minute. Baby boomers make up nearly 25% of the American population. Again, because we're living longer, uh, it's, it's, there's more and more entering in. And So the oldest baby boomers right now are approaching their 70th birthdays. And in about 15 years, the last of them will turn 65. Do you know that we have more senior citizens in America today than we've had at any time in our history? And that's not just a function of our population growing. Every eight seconds, an American turns 65. That's more than 10,000 a day, or four million a year. Now 100 years ago, 3% of our population in America was over the age of 65. Today, that has jumped up to 13%. That's in 100 years. By 2020, one out of every six Americans will be over the age of 65. Now, 65 is pretty young, right? 65 is the new 50, right? But what about 85? Today, we have 5 million Americans that are 85 years old or older. In 20 years, that number is going to more than double to 11.5 million Americans over the age of 85. Now, listen. This is not a crisis. This is an opportunity for the gospel. You and I are going to live longer. Awesome. Praise God. We, we get more time to honor God with our lives. We get more time to pass on the wisdom that we've accrued over the years. And yet this is going to have challenges and changes and major impacts to our retirement systems, to our Medicaid, to our Medicare. The age wave is happening. And we as a church in America we're going to need to find a way to respond to that. How are we going to care for this aging population? Well, are you and your spouse going to take the, the in-laws into your house? Maybe. What if you both work and that person needs constant care? So you might say, no problem, we're going to put them in a nursing home. Well, guess what? There aren't enough beds in America for all the needs right now, and that's why you see nursing homes being built all over the place. So, so you might say, no problem, we'll get a we will got a home health care worker. Well, we have 3 million people working in the home health care field right now in America. We need 5 million. So that might be hard, which is why home health care is one of the fastest growing fields in America right now. What about the costs? Well, the average home health care worker is going to cost $21 an hour. An assisted living facility is going to cost, on average, $3,300 a month. If you want a semi-private room for grandma... Grandpa, $6,200 a month. You know what the average Social Security check is? $1,230 a month. Bit of a gap. So you might say, no problem. Um, You know, people are going to have savings and and long-term care policies. It's going to be fine. Well, guess what? Right now, less than one-third of all adults over the age of 55 have any sort of plan for long-term care. If you take... Working adults between the ages of 55 and 64 and you say, let's take a look at your savings, what you're going to find out is they have zero. One-third of the 55 to 64-year-olds, that's that last 10 years before you retire, one-third have zero saved. Another third have less than one year's salary saved for retirement, $1,230 a month. Now, lots of older folks are going to find incredible homes with their kids, and their grandkids. You know, as I mentioned in my personal story, I loved having intergenerational living. I loved it. I loved it. I got to learn so much from my grandparents. But you know, just like um, the adoption of a child is not easy at all, caring for an aging parent can be difficult as well. We as the church may need to create all sorts of systems, wraparound care systems for um, kids that have taken in their grandparents, their parents. People in their 40s taking in their parents in their 70s and 80s. We may may need to create reverse mentoring systems that capitalize on the wisdom that is there. Even daycare centers for seniors. The church is perfectly suited to build a culture of intergenerational care. You see, it's not a crisis. It's an opportunity for the gospel. We're going to need to discover all sorts of ways to breathe the gospel into this Particular demographic moment in our history, and I believe we can. The church has been the innovator of all sorts of solutions to social problems over the decades, over the centuries. We've started orphanages and hospitals in the church, the Big C church. We've started food pantries and drug rehab programs. We have had a history, a track record of meeting the, the felt needs of our culture, and when we meet the felt needs of our culture, We prove to the culture that we care about them personally. And we show them that maybe the God that we worship also cares about them. See, we can do this. I think we can do this. We live in Florida, right? You know where people go when they get older? Florida. So we literally have this mission field coming to our doorstep. We don't even have to go somewhere else. We get to be in beautiful, sunny Florida and be missionaries. It's a beautiful thing, right? They're coming to our doorstep. We can step into that. We can serve. And we can breathe the gospel into the last days of their journey on this planet. They're coming to us. Do you know that in just five years' time, 1.2 million Americans over the age of 65 will have no living children, siblings, or spouses? That's just five years from now. 1.2 million Americans over the age of 65 with no one. Remember earlier, First Timothy talked about the widows who are truly widows, the ones that were truly in need. I believe we need to have a special heart for these who literally have no one, who are truly alone. I think some of, them, some of us are going to need to bring them into our, our homes. That's what I'm praying for. I'm praying for one or two or more that God will give my family the opportunity to serve someone in that 1.2 million. See, it's not a crisis, it's an opportunity for the gospel. It's going to be hard. But what does Scripture tell us? True religion is this, caring for the orphan and the widow. Listen, the call to care for widows is so clear in Scripture. And that call is true throughout the centuries. But we are about to enter into a moment in our particular history where we're stepping into uncharted territory where the call to care for the widow has to move from the side into the center because that's where our culture is going. And we as the church have to be ready to bring the gospel to our culture and meet it as it has different needs over the centuries. And this is going to become a need. So let me tell you where my heart is on this. See, I don't, I don't just want Mosaic to be a part of the solution. I want us to help write the solution. God has brought together an amazing group of people in all of you. And I believe that together we can come up with some amazing solutions for caring for widows in an aging America. You know, five years ago, Mosaic began stepping into the world of adoption in a major way. And now, just a few years later, we see the effects of it all over the place. Beg- people are beginning to turn to Mosaic and say, hey, you guys know how to care for orphans. We want to learn from you. We're known as a church that cares for orphans in a big way. I want us to be known as the same thing for widows. We're doing an awesome job on the first half of the verse. Now let's get after the second half of the verse. Here's what I'm going to suggest we do. Today is just the start. Uh, Yes, the calling on the church is always to reach into the lives of the marginalized, the orphans, the widows. But, while that never changes for all of us, and we're all called to be involved, some of you will step in in a bigger way. Some of you are going to step in in a unique way. For some of you, this is going to be your thing. In fact, some of you right now are sensing just the Spirit speaking into your, your heart, saying, this is it. This is what I want you to jump into. This is the big thing for you. This is little leap of joy in your heart because you know the Spirit is speaking to you. So here's what, here's what we're going to do. I've scheduled a meeting for April 19th. It's after a gathering on a Sunday. And all those who are interested in serving widows in a big way, we're going, to, we're going to talk about what that's going to look like here at Mosaic. And I want to make this clear. I, I don't have the answers. This isn't, a, here's the plan, now let's all do it. This is a brainstorming session. And so I need, I, I need, the, I need everybody there. I need the servants. I need the, the leaders. I need the, the entrepreneurs who dream big. And I need the, the laborers who are willing to get their hands dirty. I, I need the communicators who know how to tell the story. And I need the benefactors who can pay for it all. Because I think that we as a church can have a unique impact on this moment in our history. And I believe the gospel calls us to. We have an opportunity at our doorstep to breathe the gospel into one of the most important moments in our history. What are we going to do with it? Let's take the heart of the Heavenly Father and let's weep for the fatherless and the widow. Let's close in prayer. Father God, thank you so much for the way that you call us into hard places that you call us into uh, caring for those who are marginalized, caring for those who need it most. God, I pray that we would take that call seriously, that you would call together a group of people here at Mosaic who would be able to step into this in a major way, and that five years from now, we would be able to say that Mosaic is not only known for being an incredible church at caring for orphans, but that we are also an incredible church at caring for widows for the vulnerable women of our society. I pray that we would do that to your honor and to your glory. We pray these things in the name of your son and in the power of your spirit, amen.